Hello, welcome to the Safe Sedation Podcast, the podcast where you find all you need to know about sedation and keeping patients safe. Brought to you by Sedate UK, and with you are your hosts, Andrea Trigo, Martin Lees, and Craig Cook. If you are a first-time listener, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss new episodes. Check out our website at www.sedate-uk.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Today's episode is sponsored by Medtronic Capnostream Monitoring. In today's episode, we're talking about type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure. We're going to discuss the difference between type 1 and type 2, which of these is most common in sedation practice, how to prevent it, how to detect it when it happens, and what interventions we need to do when a patient presents with certain signs and symptoms. Let's start from the beginning. Martin, can you tell us what is type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure? Yeah, thanks, Sandra. Type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure is a serious medical condition with potentially fatal outcomes. It affects 360,000 people per year in the United States, of which 36% die during hospitalization. Respiratory failure occurs when the respiratory system fails to maintain gas exchange, resulting in hypoxia or hypercapnia. So what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure? I'll take that, uh, uh, Andrea. So, so respiratory failure is classified according to, to blood gas values. Type 1 respiratory failure or hypoxemic respiratory failure is typically associated with damage to lung tissue, which then prevents adequate oxygenation of the blood. However, the remaining normal lung is still sufficient to excrete carbon dioxide. And this results in a low oxygen, but normal or low carbon dioxide levels, and specifically arterial oxygen pressure, PaO2, is less than eight kilopascals or 60 millimeters of mercury with normal or low arterial carbon dioxide pressures or, or PaCO2. Type two respiratory failure or hypercapnic respiratory failure on the other hand, occurs when alveolar ventilation is insufficient to excrete the carbon dioxide being produced. And in this instance, the inadequate ventilation is due to reduced ven ventilatory effort. For example, as would be, uh, could happen with uh, sedation or it's due to the inability to overcome increased resistance to ventilation. So it affects the lung as a whole, and therefore carbon dioxide accumulates and you have hyper, hypercapnia. Specifically, the, the picture here would be a low oxygen PaO2, less than eight kilopascals or 60 millimeters of mercury, and a high carbon dioxide PaCO2, typically greater than six kilopascals or 50 millimeters of mercury. Okay, so to see if I understood correctly, in type 1, we have a patient that is unable to oxygenate the blood properly and presents with low oxygen and normal or low carbon dioxide levels. And in type 2, we have a patient who might be unable to produce an adequate ventilatory effort, and he's going to present with low 
oxygen and high carbon dioxide. Exactly, exactly. And I'm wondering, is respiratory failure preventable? Is there anything that we can do to prevent it? Yeah, of course. So preventing respiratory failure starts with being aware of the possible risk factors and causes. So what are the causes of type one respiratory failure? Well, these include quite common conditions like pulmonary edema, pneumonia, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, otherwise known as COPD, asthma, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, chronic pulmonary fibrosis, pneumothorax, pulmonary embolism, and pulmonary hypertension. Type two respiratory failure is commonly caused by chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but may also be caused by chest wall deformities, respiratory muscle weakness, and uh, CNS depression. And that's relevant and important because CNS depression is associated with res reduced respiratory drive and is often a side effect of sedatives and strong opioids, typically the sort of drugs we use during sedation. So it may also be caused by severe asthma, myasthenia gravis, muscle disorders, obesity, hypothyroidism, and ARDS. Once aware of individual risk factors, healthcare professionals are able to plan interventions that minimize risk and reduce the likelihood of increased morbidity and mortality. Okay, so that leads me to the next question. How can we as healthcare professionals detect type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure? So there's a, a few ways of doing this. Uh, blood gas analysis, obviously, this helps professionals identify the type of respiratory failure, which is crucial to indicate what respiratory support may be needed. Type 1 may require only supplementary oxygen, supplemental oxygen, but type 2 may require additional support, such as CPAP or BiPAP, biphasic positive airway pressure, to increase exchange of both gases. And where possible, also reverse any causes for low, low tidal volumes or low respiratory rates. Now, in the case of sedation, clearly the, the sedationist would need to um, address the CNS depression which in turn is causing the respiratory depression um, picture in, in a particular patient. Blood gas analysis is also useful in monitoring the clinical condition throughout treatment and recovery. But typically in sedation, blood gas analysis is not going to be re required. The patients are typically more healthy and the monitoring of the respiratory status of the patient together with titrating the drug to affect should, uh, should keep the patient um, in reasonable respiratory function. Capnography, this is a key piece of kit that uh, is mandatory in sedation and clearly um, will provide a continuous reading of respiratory function and end tidal CO2. So if the patient does start drifting uh, too deep or their respiration is compromised, towards a type two picture, then the sedationist can, can intervene. And a good example of uh, a fantastic piece of kit is the Medtronic Capna Stream, who is the sponsor of, of this podcast, but it really is a, a neat piece of kit. Then we have pulse oximetry. This gives you 
the picture of the blood oxygen saturation side of the equation or, or, or the um, specific levels that also help to distinguish between uh, types of respiratory failure. And then ECG is probably um, another piece of kit that because it monitors cardiac function, then it, it will pick up or manifest uh, tachycardia or cardiac arrhythmias that are associated or result from any hypoxemia or, or acidosis. Okay, so we have all this sort of equipments and kit helping us identify respiratory um, failure, but do patients also present with any other signs and symptoms that could potentially help us identify this problem? Yes, they do, Andrea. And we can split them into the signs and symptoms of hypoxemia and the signs and symptoms of hypercapnia. So in the patients who are hypoxemic, where their blood oxygen levels are low, they may well describe uh, shortness of breath or be observed to be irritable. Uh, this can go on to be confusion. Ultimately, the patients can be become sleepy and some patients uh, unfortunately suffer hypoxemic seizures so they can have fits. Um, typically they will be tachycardic in an attempt to compensate for the low blood oxygen levels. They may even go on to, to develop arrhythmias, so irregular heart rhythms, and they will be trying to breathe more rapidly so they'll be tachypneic or have a high respiratory rate. Uh, and ultimately you will observe cyanosis or a blue discoloration of, of the lips and tongue or the peripheries. But central cyanosis is a more reliable sign. So the patients with a, uh, a high carbon dioxide or hypercapnic respiratory failure typically report headaches and they can be observed to have a change in behavior, uh, which then can deteriorate and become a coma. If, if we are using a fundoscope and looking in the eyes, you might notice, notice swelling at the, at the back of the eye, which is called papilledema. And they will typically have warm extremities because the carbon dioxide causes vasodilatation. Okay, so what should we do as healthcare professionals if we find a patient with any of these signs and symptoms of hypoxemia or hypercapnia? I'll, I'll take that. So, so intervening in, in cases of respiratory failure includes um, supportive measures as well as treatment of the underlying cause. And depending on the presentation, interventions should aim to correct the hypoxemia or the hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis that may, may be associated. So correction of hypoxemia, here the aim is to maintain adequate oxygenation achieved with or when an arterial oxygen pressure, PaO2 of 60 millimeters of mercury is attained. The inspired oxygen concentration should be adjusted uh, at the lowest level, which is sufficient for tissue oxygenation. And oxygen can be delivered by a nasal cannula, simple face mask, non-rebreathing mask, or high flow nasal cannula. And in severe cases, patients may require invasive ventilatory support. The correction of hypocapnia and respiratory acidosis, this is achieved by treating the underlying cause or providing ventilatory 
support. So for example, in sedation, the, 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 if, if the sedative or over sedation is the cause, then that needs to be addressed by the sedationist. Well, so I think we clarified a lot of important points today. To summarize, I would say that type one and type two respiratory failure is a serious medical condition um, and mortality associated with it will depend on the underlying cause, but as well as the speed of the diagnosis and efficacy of our management as healthcare professionals. So to be able to prevent, detect, and intervene adequately, it's, it's crucial for us to, to have patients with improved outcomes. And I think all of these interventions that we've been talking about today can be extremely helpful. So now all we need to do is answer two questions from our listeners. And the first question is, is type one respiratory failure likely to happen in sedation? I'll take that, Andreas. Um, no, I think the typical picture that you would expect would be type two respiratory failure because this occurs when alve alveolar ventilation is insufficient to excrete mm. the carbon dioxide being produced, such as may, may occur when a patient, a sedated patient has um, has um, CNS depression, and thus their, their ventilatory or their respiratory drive is reduced, and the carbon dioxide being produced will not be uh, excreted sufficiently. And that's when you would see CO2 start to creep up. So typically in sedation patients, especially in ASA 1 to 3 patients, where to all intents the patients are in fairly good condition and their lungs are, are in fairly good condition, then type one is, is, is unlikely to, to be observed. But type two is definitely a possibility with respiratory depression as a result of the sedative drugs. Brilliant. And the second question is, what are the specific steps to deal with respiratory failure that is associated with sedation? Yeah, I'll pick that one up, Andrea. So <clears throat> we start with uh, our approach to monitoring and um, keeping the patients safe. So as we're integrating all the information from the monitors and titrating to effect, should it be that the drugs have caused CNS depression and the level of sedation is further than desired, we would likely see that the ventilation is reduced through a reduced respiratory rate. And the easiest way to see that is with the capnography waveforms on the screen being continuously monitored, becoming less frequent. And that's usually the first sign that we're heading to type two respiratory failure and that the patient who normally receives supplemental oxygen isn't actually desaturated yet, but has started to reduce their minute ventilation as Craig was saying. And although the absolute number on the capnograph that's, respond, uh, that's relevant to the end tidal carbon dioxide concentration is, mm. is not diagnostic of, of anything in particular, you can see the trend that has changed since before the sedation started. So if the respiratory rate has slowed down and ultimately if the waveforms disappear, then the patient has uh, stopped breathing. And if you were to do a blood gas at that instance, an arterial blood gas, 
the measurements of the carbon dioxide would likely be elevated. And the way out of that situation, of course, is to um, assess the airway, clear the airway if with suction if necessary, and then do some airway maneuvers to uh, open the airway and manually assist with bag valve mask uh, uh, if necessary. And one could consider then reversing the uh, sedation agents if, if that's a prolonged episode. Okay, thank you guys. And that is all for today. Thank you for joining us. We will share all the information about this episode on the podcast notes. There's a new episode coming up soon. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And you know you can find us on www.sedate-uk.com and on social media. Please feel free to message us directly if you have any questions, feedback or comments. Thank you for listening.